Hi, welcome to The Halfling. I'm your host, Jaron Pack, and this is episode 17, Ents, Entwives, and Whoorns, Oh My. My thanks again to the Tolkien professor for coming onto the show last time. It was awesome talking about Middle-earth, adaptations, and all of the fun that we can have with the upcoming Rings of Power show. No matter how faithful it is to the original source material, we can still enjoy the experience knowing that, in Corey's own words, no book will be harmed in the making of this show. Now that all of the interview fun is over, though, we need to circle back and finish up our time with Treebeard and the Ents. So far, we've covered who the Ents are, what their culture is like, and some of the places they've lived throughout Middle-earth history. The one area of the Ents that we haven't really broken down in detail yet is the different kinds of beings that make up their particular people group. That's right, there are different kinds of Entish beings out there in Middle-earth. And I don't just mean the various trees that they look like. In this episode, we'll cover the Ents and how they're different from the Entwives, the Entings, and the Huorns. Let's start with a quick recap of what it means to be an Ent, shall we? Ents are, in essence, the male population of the shepherds of the trees. They look like all sorts of different trees, usually the ones that they are most closely affiliated with, and can have all sorts of features, even though they all share the same deep, wise, and experienced eyes. The Ents tend to live wild lives, wandering through the woods and hills and drinking from mountain streams, that kind of stuff. They aren't agricultural, but rather they eat food that the trees drop in their paths. That and their ant drafts, of course. In comparison, we have the Entwives. Just to clarify for those of you who have only seen Peter Jackson's films, the Entwives have not appeared on the silver screen. Not yet, anyway. We'll talk more about that possibility in a bit, but at the time of the Lord of the Rings, the Entwives are ancient Middle-earth history, even for the Ents. Even though there aren't any living specimens to talk about, though, Treebeard does give us a description of this other half of his people, so to speak. He gives us the explanation in the Two Towers book when he has a long talk with Pippin and Merry about the history of his tree folk. If you didn't guess it from the name, the Entwives make up the female portion of the Entish community. Some of these are also called Ent Maidens, so, you know, maidens, wives. In fact, Treebeard tells us about his own long-lost love, the Ent Maiden Fimbrethil of Wandlim the Light-Footed. Talk about a name and a half there. Anyway, this distinct difference between Ents and Entwives is a defining factor of their race. In fact, in a letter in 1955, Tolkien even wrote that part of the inspiration for the Ents came from what he perceived as the normal difference between men and women in life. The author even writes that into the development of the tree folk, quote, crept a mere piece of experience, the difference of the male and female attitude to wild things, the difference between unpossessive love and gardening, end quote. And yeah, since we're in audio format, I'll just point out that he puts both the words male and female in quotations. The whole inspiration for the two halves of Entish culture is a pretty deep concept. I'll just let that one simmer for a bit, though. While we don't get too much about how the Entwives look, we're told by Fangorn that they're similar yet different in appearance from the Ents. When he's asked if they look like the Ents, all Treebeard can say is, quote, Yes, hmm, well, no, I do not really know now. End quote. 
In the discussion that follows, we hear that the Entwives at least seem to be generally like the Ents in their looks. At least, they've got that plant-based vibe going on, you could say. And Treebeard is quick to point out that they also have the eyes of the Ents. That eye thing is just a key feature. But apart from that, it seems that there are quite a few differences. For instance, later in their existence, the Entwives spend a lot of time in the sun. More on the reason for that soon, and their organic hair becomes, in Treebeard's words, quote, parched by the sun to the hue of ripe corn and their cheeks like red apples, end quote. A thorough description of the Antwives' physical appearance is pretty challenging to pull together because there's just not too much out there. As is the case with many people in Tolkien's writings, we get a much better idea of their overall lifestyle than their appearance. The Antwives are definitively not wild. In fact, in many ways, they're the antithesis of their Entish companions. They love order and agriculture. They also like lesser trees, smaller plants and flowers, and they love to organize growing things into fields and gardens. While they do give their attention to the smaller plants of creation, though, they don't necessarily cultivate relationships with them the same way that the Ents do with the larger trees in the forests. In fact, They distinctly prefer their orderly gardens and agricultural plots to pay attention and grow the way that they're told to. This desire doesn't necessarily come from a power trip or an obsession with being in charge, though. Treebeard explains that they simply desire obedience because, in his words, quote, The Entwives desire order and plenty and peace, by which they meant that things should remain where they had set them. End quote. There's admittedly a hint of tongue-in-cheek in the way that the old ant delivers the line. You know, he's coming from the wild woods, talking about a lifestyle he doesn't approve of necessarily. But it really does seem that the Entwives had the greater good in mind throughout their gardening activities. Before we move on from the agricultural proclivities of the Entwives, I want to stress one more big deal. These guys don't just garden like it's a hobby or something. They are the premier gardeners of Middle-earth. Like, no one is better at growing things than the Entwives. And this makes sense as far as Tolkien explains it in their origin story, too. Think about it. Yavanna specifically says during their creation story that she chooses the trees to become guardians, but she wants them to, quote, speak on behalf of all things that have roots and punish those that wrong them, end quote. So while the Ents clearly protect the forests, the Entwives, in a sense, represent the completion of their collective calling by caring for things like flowers, grasses, and, you know, the garden-sized stuff. And if you were thrown off by that reference to Yavanna and the creation of the Ents, we covered that in the earlier parts of this series. So head on back there, give them a listen, and then come on back here. Now, it's worth pointing out that this love of gardens and orderly agricultural development even indirectly connects the Entwives to the Shire. See. When Merry and Pippin describe their orderly and prosperous homeland, Treebeard actually asks if they've ever seen Entwives in the area. Now, the hobbits say they haven't, which drives with the very uninteresting, down-to-earth and overall miniature vibe of their home. But it's established that it's clearly an area that would attract Entwives. And I'm willing to bet in comparison that it would not attract the Ents. There's actually a bit more to say about this part of the story, but we'll have to circle back about this one too. For now, let's just put a pin in the thought that the Entwives and the Shire fit like two peas in a pod. The last group of Ents that we need to talk about here is the Entings. These are, for lack of a better word, Ent Kids. When Treebeard explains the decline of the Entish population by the end of the Third Age, he attributes it to the lack of these tree children. 
In the conversation, it's implied that the Ents and the Entwives are human enough somehow, for lack of a better word, to fall in love, create relationships, and ultimately have children. At the same time, he also talks about trees becoming Entish, and it isn't clear how Ents and Entwives are involved in that process. In fact, there's very little out there about what Entings are, except for the fact that, by the War of the Ring, there aren't any more of these little tree tykes running around replenishing the herd, so to speak. Now, there's one more fascinating group of living trees that we haven't talked about yet. The Huorns. Again, Tolkien doesn't give us much to go on when it comes to this group of tree-ent-ish things. In fact, in The Two Towers, Mary literally states that, quote, Treebeard won't say much about them. End quote. Yeah. Thanks a lot, Tolkien. No, we do get at least a mini-description of these weird semi-entish creatures. For lack of a better term, though, these are living creatures that appear to be stuck somewhere between fully sentient Ents and plain old trees. They're described as possibly being Ents that have become almost like trees. In other words, they've mostly lost their willpower to move around and do their shepherding duties in a more mobile and talkative manner. Now, this is very possible and reinforces something Treebeard tells the hobbits when he explains that, quote, Most of the trees are just trees, of course, but many are half awake. Some are quite wide awake, and a few are, well, uh, well, getting entish. That is going on all the time. End quote. Now, the interesting thing that I'm trying to point out here is that Mary's opinion is that the Huorns are ants slowing down and becoming like trees. In contrast, Treebeard explains that the trees are consistently becoming Entish. As far as I can tell from my research, Tolkien never settles on an official version of this evolution. Either that or both are happening at the same time, and all of the half-tree, half-ents are left in this mysterious middle category known as the Huorns. But just because the Huorns aren't fully Ents doesn't mean they're immobile. Oh, they can move, and they can move really quickly when they're angry and they can wrap themselves in shadow and are explained as having a dormant power within them that's ready to pour out at any moment. They also have voices and can communicate with the fully Entish Ents. Just because they're like Ents, though, doesn't mean the other two-legged creatures that they come across can expect them to act civilly. In fact, by the time of the Lord of the Rings, the Huorn population has become a very... Mm, unstable, let's say. They're wild and dangerous and can be unpredictable if there aren't any ants around to keep them under control. Unlike the Entwives, the Huorns have actually made it into a cinematic adaptation at this point. They make up that tree-looking forest that shows up at the end of the Battle of Helm's Deep and catches the last survivors of Saruman's attack. They also back up the Entish assault on Isengard and ensure that no one escapes from that fortress alive either. Now, there's one other place where the Huorns, I think, pop up as well, and it's actually before Merry and Pippin meet their arboreal friend in Fangorn Forest. In fact, for this one, you need to back all the way up to the earliest chapters of the Fellowship of the Ring. I also have to point out that if you've only seen the movies, you probably don't know what I'm talking about this time. And that's okay, though, because I'm about to give you the quick recap. The Huorn-esque event, Huorn-ish event, Huorn-y event? Uh, I'm not sure what to use for that one. Anyway, the event takes place just after Frodo, Sam, Merry, and Pippin leave the Shire. 
Now, in the movies, they make straight for Bree and show up there on a rainy night and they're chased by the Black Riders and Aragorn finds them, all that fun stuff. But fans of the books know well that they start the journey by taking a shortcut through an area right next to the Shire called the Old Forest. Now, that forest is described as an ancient, surviving piece of the vast and forgotten woods of the past. Now, the goal here is for the hobbits to throw the Black Riders off of their scent, and the plan works. Nice job, guys. You didn't get sliced and diced by the Ringwraiths. But even though that grisly alternative is definitely worse, their shortcut ends up coming with all sorts of deadly perils all on its own. This includes an encounter with the ghostly Barrow Whites, and it also ends up landing them in a sticky mess, pun intended, with some grumpy horns. See, as they head through the forest, the four hobbits realize that the trees are more than just passive plants. They feel watched, and not in a good way either. Mary, who is familiar with the forest and the only one of the hobbits who's been there before, explains that the trees can actually move. In fact, they even attacked the Shire once. Yep, for real, here are his words. Quote, The forest is queer. Everything in it is very much alive, more aware of what is going on, so to speak, than things are in the Shire. And the trees do not like strangers. They watch you. End quote. Now from there he goes on to explain that the trees generally just watch you during the day or do small things to bother you, like trip you up or grab at you with a root. At night, though, well, that's when things get serious. Here's what Mary says happened the one or two times he visited the wood after the sun went down. Quote, I thought all the trees were whispering to each other, passing news and plots along in an unintelligible language, and the branches swayed and groped without any wind. They do say the trees do actually move and can surround strangers and hem them in. In fact, long ago they attacked the hedge. They came and planted themselves right by it and leaned over it. End quote. Now, the hedge that Mary is talking about, that's an uppercase H, is a massive living wall that the hobbits plant along the border of the unfriendly forest. It's many, many miles long, and when the trees attack it, the hobbits come with axes and literally cut hundreds of these plant-based assailants down. They drag them back into the forest and burn them. So, like, there's literally a mini-war between the hobbits and the trees, and after that, the forest becomes a lot more hostile. But if you'll notice, there isn't an all-out Ent-Hobbit kind of battle with moving trees that are swinging arms and legs. I think that's because they're Huorns. Anyway, this is all history by the time Frodo and his friends try to pass through, and in spite of their efforts, their path forces them into the heart of the forest. There, they meet Old Man Willow. This giant tree lives by the banks of the Withywindle River, where it spent countless years growing in power and malice. Scarred by centuries of conflict with two-legged creatures, Old Man Willow is the most dangerous tree in the whole bitter forest. Tolkien described him this way, quote, But none were more dangerous than the great Willow. His heart was rotten, but his strength was green, and he was cunning, and a master of winds, and his song and thought ran through the woods on both sides of the river. His grey, thirsty spirit drew power out of the earth, and spread like fine root threads in the ground, and invisible twig fingers in the air, till it had under its dominion nearly all the trees of the forest, from the hedge to the downs. End quote. So yeah, this tree is a really bad guy. 
When Frodo and his friends arrive on the spot, Old Man Willow gently lulls them to sleep. Then he pounces, metaphorically at least. He knocks Frodo into the river and tries to drown him. He also grabs Merry and Pippin, holding them in his trunk. In fact, this part might even sound familiar for movie-only fans who have seen the extended version of The Two Towers. That's because a similar event happens to Merry and Pippin in Fangorn in a deleted scene where a tree nabs them and sucks them into a net of roots. In that version, Treebeard arrives just in time, scolding the tree and ordering it to let them go. In the original version of the encounter, though, the hobbits are saved by someone else. Someone bright, merry, and way too comfortable with singing and dancing. That's right, I'm talking about the enigmatic Tom Bombadil. Now, we're here to talk about Ents, so I'm going to resist the temptation to spin off into a discussion on Bombadil, but let's just say the lovably ridiculous old fellow cheerily frees the hobbits and sings Old Man Willow back into his place. And the story goes on from there, leaving the bitter tree behind. But the big point I want to make here, right now, is what on earth? Moving trees way up near the Shire? That's like 500 miles away from Treebeard's home. No, I mean it, I measured it on one of those Middle-earth maps. But we're not talking about fully sentient moving Ents here. These are pretty clearly Huorns, if you ask me at least. Although Tolkien doesn't specifically state that, as far as I can tell. If that's the case though, if these are Huorns living like mere minutes from the Hobbit's homeland, then the remnants of the ancient Entish culture aren't just restricted to the borders of Fangorn. They still percolate through the forests of Middle-earth. Now that makes me wonder where else Tolkien thought they could be found, but that's a question I think we'll never get an answer to. The one other little Shire-based Entish factoid that goes along with this is a conversation even earlier in the Fellowship of the Ring just before Gandalf returns and tells Frodo, you know, that he's got the one ring and he's got to leave his comfy life behind and all that fun stuff. Just before that encounter, Tolkien pens a scene in the Green Dragon Inn in Bywater, near Bag End, where Sam Gamgee and several others are talking about the strange events going on all around the Quiet Shire. In the conversation, Sam brings up some odd tree-ish behavior, saying, quote, but what about these tree men, these giants as you might call them? They do say that one bigger than a tree was seen up away beyond the North Moors not long back. End quote. After that, he insists that his less than dependable cousin Halfast saw a tree that was literally walking. Whether it's a particularly limber Huorn, an Ent, or an Entwife is never clarified. I mean, maybe it wasn't an Ent at all, but it does really seem like it's a tree based sentient life form. And if you ask me, I think there's little doubt that Huorns, at the least, still live on in other areas of Middle-earth besides Fangorn Forest during The Lord of the Rings. Okay, so let's recap. Treebeard and the Ents live in Fangorn, where they shepherd the wild woods. The Entwives historically live in agricultural settings where they tend to smaller grasses, flowers, and other shrub-sized stuff. Earlier in their history, the Entish population is maintained by the birth of Entings, which appeared to require both an Ent and an Entwife to create, although Treebeard also describes the process of trees becoming Entish too, so the jury's kind of out on how that one goes. And then we have the Huorns. These creatures are somewhere between trees and Ents, and they either follow their Entish leaders when they have them, or they exist on their own and are really dangerous. Now, I know we haven't gone into detail about what the Ents' collective story actually is yet, but I wanted to save that for last because 
I think there's just too much interesting stuff about their actual lifestyle and culture to just skip over it all. It doesn't do them justice to tell their story with a one-dimensional image of the on-screen version of just Treebeard and a few ants going through our heads. Now, though, we've set the stage. We know how the ants live, where they lived, how Tolkien created them, and now we even understand the different kinds of creatures within the Entish subculture. Next time, we're going to take all of this information and go through the Entish story, starting after their creation and going right down to the last pieces of information we ever hear about their role in the post-Lord of the Rings world. As always, if you're willing to leave a rating and review, I'd appreciate it. Alright, that's it for now. Until next time, friends. This episode is brought to you by, well, me. And despite the fact that I've memorized whole chunks of Tolkien at this point, it still takes quite a bit of work to pull each of these together. There are also some recurring expenses that come with keeping the show on the air. So, if you're interested in helping, I set up a way to toss a few dollars toward covering costs. Just go to buymeacoffee.com slash thehalfling. That's buymeacoffee.com slash thehalfling. If you make a donation, thank you very much. And either way, I hope you'll stick around for all the fun. All right, that's it for now. Until next time, friends.